Hebrews 5. If you remember where we are chronologically, you know that in AD 64 there was a fire that burned half of the city of Rome. Nero was the ruler of Rome, and uh, many of the people began to blame Nero for this destruction of Rome. So he had to find somebody to deflect that responsibility upon, and he chose Christians. So it very quickly became illegal to be a Christian, and uh, it was very common for persecution to go upon Christians from the Romans. And you already know that for the first 30 years before that of Christianity that the Jews have been in opposition to Christians all along, right? So there's persecution coming from the Jews, and now there's persecution coming from the Romans, and so there's really nowhere to find uh, relief, I guess. So what ended up happening was there were some of those who, because of that pressure, they were much less bold, and they began to draw back a little bit, and they began even some to compromise. And what ended up happening was primarily that happened with the, the Jewish Christians, those who had become Christians out of Judaism. You know, they've lost families and careers and, and livelihoods, everything that connected that. So they started trying to hang on to a little bit of that old law, and as a consequence of that, what they were hoping was to relieve some of this persecution. You can't change Rome but if you got back in with the Jews, then you're going to be doing a little better. And the problem with that is, if you go back to that, you've left Christianity, right? So this book of Hebrews is written from the perspective of making logical arguments about why they have things better uh, under this new system, this system of faith, the gospel, than they ever had under Judaism. Even when they were under it, uh, it wasn't what they have now in Christianity. And so... These arguments begin in chapter 1. He's just talking about what's better. Chapter 1, the messenger is better. Under the old law, God spoke to the fathers through the prophets, right? In various ways, but through the prophets. But now, in these last days, has spoken unto us by his son. Okay, that's better, right? That makes the law better. Then he talked about the angels that were the messengers that delivered all of that under the old law versus the one who is the son. Which of the angels did he ever call a son? Well, he didn't, right? So he's better than the angels. So chapter 2 becomes a conclusion. If he's better than you know, the prophets and he's better than the angels, then here's what you have to recognize. Under that old law, if those people didn't listen to the prophets and the angels, what happened to them? They were lost, right? They suffered the consequences of that. Well, if we have so much better, a better messenger and better than the angels and all of that, then what should we expect if we don't listen to him? Any less? And the answer is no. So he gets into chapter 4, and on Sunday we were in chapter 3 and 4, really. I guess I don't want to skip chapter 3. Chapter 3, he makes the arguments that his work is better than the work of Moses, and that, 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 that he is superior to Moses in who he is. And so then he draws that conclusion again and says, you know, what happened to those people in the wilderness who, who listened to Moses, but it didn't develop faith in them? And so when they went to Kadesh Barnea, and they sent the spies into the land, and they came back, what happened to them? They didn't enter into the rest, did they? But somebody had to enter in because God promised it, right? So the nation did enter in, but the people who lacked faith didn't, right? And his parallel is, we're under something better. Should we expect any less? And the answer is obviously no. So in chapter 4, he pulls that to a conclusion about that rest. And, and then at the end of chapter 4, you know, I talk about this, especially in this book. Romans is another book I deal with this a lot. I don't like the chapter breaks in a lot of places. I think that they're detrimental to the flowing of the context 
Occasionally I talk about the fact that it happened too early. Well, this one happened too late. I think that the chapter break should be between verses 13 and 14 of chapter 4 to go into chapter 5. So we're going to start in verse 14 of chapter 4, which we did on Sunday, and then we'll continue on through chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. Seeing then, he's been talking about this rest that we need to enter into. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. That was, we talked about that Sunday. That meant the ascension, right? Okay. Through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore... Come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So we want to enter into this rest. And how that happens is we have this high priest. And we have a high priest that, that understands us. And we have a high priest that knows what we're, we're going through. And because of that, he says, we have the ability to go before the throne of God. And not timidly, but boldly. Is it because we're so good? It's because he died, right? His blood cleanses, and so we can approach God's throne because of that. Okay, now he keeps going. For, there's your connecting word. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God. That he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. So now he starts referring back to the previous. You know, his arguments in this book are, you've got things better, right? Better things than what they had under the old law. So now he's talking about the high priest and he says, you have this high priest that is better and therefore you can boldly come before the throne of God. But what you used to have was these high priests who were appointed from men for men. The priesthood. When God put the priesthood in place, was it because God needed it? What was the priest's job? Well, wait, I want to say it the way I always do it. What's the difference between the job of a prophet and the job of a priest? The prophet took the message from God to the people, and the priest took the people back to God. So the priest had the responsibility of the sacrifices and everything that took the people from where they were to have access to God, right? And so there's no difference with our high priest. But here's the deal. What he says there in verse 1 is, their high priest, God didn't need man to be made right with him. Man needed to be right with God. So he chose high priests or priests from the people... To help them through the offering of sacrifices. Now look. Verse 2. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray. Since he himself is also beset by weakness. Because of this. He is required as for the people. So also for himself to offer for sins. Now what did we just learn about the old priesthood? It was imperfect. When they were under the law, they they couldn't go before God's throne boldly because they didn't have a high priest who had conquered what they were dealing with, who understood it and conquered it. Oh, they understood it. They understood it because they were just like them, right? And so in order to take the people to God, first they had to sacrifice for themselves, right? Because they were human. Now look at the next verse. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he was called by God just as Aaron was. Now, how does that connect? Okay, I'm going to make it simple. How did you become a Jew under the old law? 
You're born. Your parents were Jewish, right? So you were born a Jew. What did you know about it when you were born? Nothing, right? So at, at the seventh day, you, if you were male, on the seventh day you'd be circumcised, right? What, what choice were you making about that? Nothing, okay? But what would happen is from the time of birth forward, your parents were supposed to teach you of what it meant to be in this covenant with God through Judaism, right? So they were supposed to teach you of that. But you became a Jew simply because your parents were Jewish, not because you chose to become a Jew, okay? How, what, how was it determined which tribe you were in? Did you get to choose that? Did you get to say, like, at the age of 21, you could say, all right, I've thought about this, and I'm going to pick Dan. Is that the way it worked? How did it work? Wherever you were born to, right? And when we were at Mount Sinai and God was giving them the law and all these jobs to do, did he not single out each one of these tribes with certain places they would be in the camp, how they would pack up to leave, what their job was, carrying things and all that kind of stuff, right? And there was one tribe that he, was, that he told them they would not have a land inheritance. Now, they had lands. They inherited lands around cities, and they inherited cities. What they did not inherit is a tribe, a tribe land, like the others did, because they were going to be spread out. Who was that? Tribe of Levi. Why? Because God chose them to be the priest, and the priests need to be scattered out among the people so everybody would have access to God. Okay, when did you choose to become a priest? When did you choose to become a Levite? You didn't. You were born into it. Okay, were all Levites priests? Oh, so it got more narrow. So how did you choose to become a priest? You didn't choose. You came from the line of Aaron. In fact... Don't we read about Nadab and Abihu and their sin and their, the consequences of that? They didn't choose to become priests, did they? And they failed in it. So what he's saying here is Jesus willingly became a priest, but these pri- this priesthood that you had before, those people were there. They were what they were because of their genealogy. What did that have to do with anything? It was just a protecting of a seed line. God was teaching them something. So now he's saying this is why it's better because your high priest chose it. Keep going. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So he gave Jesus his role. God did. Now he chose it, didn't he? He willingly submitted to the will of God, became flesh like we talked about in chapter 1. Suffered the consequences of living that flesh, including to the point of dying. And that's how God made him our priest. Okay, but it's different than the order of, of Aaron. It's different than the order of the Levites. This one's according to the order of this guy that we've been introduced now called Melchizedek. I talked about him in a sermon recently, and we're not going to deal with him a whole lot tonight. What we'll deal with him is when Paul expands on it in a few chapters. I said Paul again, see. When the, the author... Expands on it in a few chapters later on about about what he what what this Melchizedek means. And I do want to say it this way though. What you find out is, does anybody know who Melchizedek was? Yeah, he was the king of Salem. What was Salem? Where was Salem? Where? Jerusalem. That was an early name for Jerusalem before it became Jerusalem. It was just Salem. So uh, so the king of Salem was Melchizedek. And what happens is Abraham goes to battle. He's coming back from battle, rescuing Lot, and as he comes back, he runs into this man, Melchizedek, who is a priest of God. That's what he's called. He is a king and a priest of God. 
Is he a Levite? Ah, Abraham's descendants have not reached the point where Jacob, who becomes Israel, is born, who has sons, one of whom is named Levi, whose descendants will be Levites. So that, none of that exists yet, right? So he isn't a priest according to the order of Levite or the old law. He is a king and a priest, and you couldn't be both those things under the old law. So something was different about the priesthood of Jesus that connects back to Melchizedek. And again, I'll expand on that more in a, in a few classes. Verse 7. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, who's he talking about? Our high priest, Jesus. How did he become qualified? And that word perfected, although he was perfect, that word does not mean perfect in the way that we look at it. What it means is completion. Whether it be a maturity or a completing of a task or whatever. And so by his death, he's in this garden. And you remember in the garden, he's praying. And the text, Luke records that about that hematidrosis I've told you about with the bleeding through the skin because of all the stress. And he's crying with tears out to God, and he says, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, what did he say? Not my will, but thine. And he willingly submitted himself to God's plan, didn't he? And by doing that, he completed all this task that God had given him. He was resurrected, and he became our high priest, which then, connecting back to where all this started, at the end of chapter 4, makes it possible for us to approach the throne of God. Because he didn't have to sacrifice for himself. He sacrificed for us. So who can go? Who can go before the throne of God? Verse 9. All who obey him. Were you here Sunday night when we were talking about commands? I told you a story about Creston at the theater. You remember that? Command, optional commands. Is, is, is it where God says, here's what, here's what you're going to do? And by the way, the author of something means they're the ones that put it together, right? They wrote the book, literally, right? So when Jesus writes the book through his death, burial, and resurrection, which Paul calls the gospel, so death, burial, and resurrection is the gospel. When you obey the gospel, as Albert was talking about just a minute ago, you emulate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So Jesus dies, is buried, is resurrected, becomes our high priest. He writes the book. He's the author of salvation to all those who... I don't understand how that could be even any more simple. You know, you stand before God and say, well, look, I know you wrote the book about this, and I know you told us what to do, but I really didn't think it was important. But I'm sincere. I'm sincere, and I'm a good person. How does that help? The author to those who will follow him. And the example is, that's exactly what Jesus did. He obeyed the will of his Father. Keep going. Verse. Well, actually, I want to read verse 10 again and then keep going. <clears throat> called by God as high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Now, it's a little bit of a challenge here because it's a little bit of uncertainty. He says Melchizedek, and then you have this pronoun, of whom, and you think, well, that's got to refer back to Melchizedek, right? And I don't think that it does in this context. I think what it refers back to is a priesthood like Melchizedek's that the author wants to explain further to them, but now he's going to say, you're not ready to hear it. Are there 
Are there subjects in the Bible that are more important than others? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think if God put it in the Bible, it's important. Uh, okay, but here's the thing. Are there subjects in the Bible that are more difficult than others? So they don't have to be in the beginning, right? In the beginning, what do you need to know? Yeah, I'm lost. Jesus died for my sins. I don't want to stay there. So I'm going to obey the gospel and he's going to save me, right? And then who adds you to the church? God does. Okay, so once he adds you to the church, then what's the process? Yeah, Romans ten seventeen. your faith continues to develop. Your faith continues to grow by spending time in God's word. The rest of what he's written is no less important, is it? But sometimes we're not ready to listen to the rest of it. Why not? Yeah, exactly right. You know, uh, I think, this is hard to say uh, maybe, but I think my favorite book of the Bible is the book of Revelation. And it's not because I have figured out something that so many people struggle with. It's because the reason people don't get the book of Revelation is because they don't know the rest of the Bible. <laughs> if you knew the rest of the Bible, the book of Revelation, it, you know what Revelation means? Revealing. Yeah, it's a revealing. So if you know the rest of the Bible and what God says in the rest of the Bible, the book of Revelation, it kind of reveals this incredible plan of God. It's not as complicated as it may seem. Now, you're not going to figure out every sign or symbol in the book, but the, the message is not as complicated as people make it seem. That's an amazing thing. But when you first obey the gospel, do you have the foundation to do that? You ever had anybody tell you, small boats stay show, close to shore? Our teachers used to say that to us all the time. Somebody would come in and want to talk about something really deep, and teachers would say, hey, small ships or small boats stay close to shore. Until you've developed your faith, you don't need to wade off into something too deep, right? Okay, and what he's saying here, the author is saying, look, I want to talk about the priesthood and what that means and the order of Melchizedek, but you people aren't there yet. But they should be. Keep reading. Verse 12, 4, though by this time you ought to be teachers... You need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. Now, this is why I highlighted the statement that I made about, I don't think there's a part of the Bible that's more important than another part. You know, when, when he issues a command, what commands of God are optional? Okay, so if he tells us something, it's important, right? It's not optional. So I don't think that what the author here is saying is they ought to be teaching, but they can't. And so he has to give them milk instead of meat. I don't think he's saying there's some of the Bible that's milk and some of the Bible that's meat. I think he's saying you're just a baby. So how much can a baby eat? Can you give a baby anything? No, you can't, can you? Because they can't process it, can they? They can't. They don't have teeth. You give a, give a steak to a kid, how's it going to help them? Not going to do any good, is it? Because you can't eat it. So he's saying you ought to have matured, but you have not. So our question is, if everybody knows that a child comes into this world and what they have to have is nourishment, and that's milk, right? They have to have milk. What if they're 10 years old and they're still stuck that way? Yeah, you're going to find, some, well, you're going to find out what's wrong, aren't you? That's why he's writing about this. You know why they haven't matured? Because they've been going back to the old law. How do you mature going backwards? You can't mature going backwards. Keep going. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised 
to discern both good and evil. We know about that in every single area, evidently, except our spirituality. You know, how do you become, you know, when you're a kid and somebody says, what do you want to be when you grow up? What, what are some of the things you think of? Some people say a fireman or a policeman or a doctor or whatever, right? Okay, here's a question. How do you get there? Do you just let the years pass? Oh, well, you got to work at it, don't you? And that takes some discipline, doesn't it? It takes some exercise mentally, sometimes physically. I mean, you're not going to become a fireman laying on the couch eating Cheetos, right? Okay, so it takes some discipline and some effort to become these things. Well, why do we suddenly think that as far as Christianity is concerned, we're going to obey the gospel, and then we're going to sit in a pew while the preacher sits up there and feeds us baby food out of a jar? How are we going to ever grow that way? It takes discipline. It takes practice. So what I do is, here's how I mature as a Christian. I study, and what I learn, I apply to my life. And as I discipline myself and become more of what God wants us to be, I learn more. And it becomes easier to apply more and to apply more. And before long, I have grown, and I don't need milk anymore. But what if I don't grow? Whose fault is that? What's the preacher's fault? Because the spoon he was feeding me with was too small, right? Keep going. Chapter 6. Therefore. That's a connecting word, isn't it? Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to maturity. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms or washings, of laying on of hands and of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Now, it's really easy for people to to lose our context here and say, You know, this is some milk things versus some meat things. And that's not, I know the context is dealing with a bigger thing than that. It's not again about the baby. It's just the baby is used to explain why they don't need to, why they can't grasp what they need to grasp. What they're talking about, what he's talking about is the contrast of the old law they had been under versus what they are under now. Why did they want to go back to make things easier? Did it make it easier? Only with the people that were around them, not with God. So he says, I don't need to lay again this foundation. See, under the old law, did they have to repent under the old law? Sure they did. Sure they did. And they had to bring sacrifices. Well, here's a question. What good did it do them? Without the sacrifice of Christ, what good did a single bull that they sacrificed under the Old Testament do? Not one thing, did it? So all their repentance there means nothing without what fulfilled it, Right? Okay, and even as they begin this new covenant, you have a laying on of hands, which, by the way, happened through the apostles, didn't it? So you have this beginning. And why did they lay hands on people? That, that was a sign that they were impossible. What was the purpose of them laying hands on other people? To pass on miraculous gifts. So like, the, for example, when we talked about the church at Rome, that Paul wanted to go there, and he said one reason is because they were lacking some things. So he wanted to give them some of the things they were lacking. They didn't have all the gifts that they needed. So they passed on that. Well, they needed that because they didn't have this book, did they? So they needed these miraculous gifts, and that was the beginning. But why go back to it when you've got it? Do we need those today? No. Because we've got the book, right? So he's saying, why would you go backwards? And the washings, the words baptism there, the word means washings, plural. Plural. Did they have that under the old law? 
They, they, you remember all those lavers they had around the, the, the tabernacle? They washed the utensils. They washed themselves. It was incredibly messy. You remember as we went through that? All these washings, did they represent anything? Did they point toward anything? Of course, all of it did. And so his point is, let me say it this way. Uh, in, in another place, Paul was talking about the shadow. The old covenant being a shadow and the new covenant being the fulfillment of that. So let's make it really simple and we'll talk about being hungry. And this is the way I explained it last time. You're hungry and you have in your hand, you're standing outside in the middle of the day, you have a ham sandwich in your hand. And you look down and there's your shadow and there is also a shadow of the ham sandwich. Which one are you going to eat? The ham sandwich or the shadow? And after you eat the ham sandwich... There won't be a shadow there, but after you eat the ham sandwich, do you then eat the shadow? doesn't do any good, does it? If the old covenant was the shadow, and they're in this, they got the ham sandwich, why go eat the shadow? Keep going. Oh, wait, and this we will do if God permits. You know, the thing is, when, when the author says there in chapter 5, there was so much he needed to explain about this this priesthood of Christ and even connecting it to Melchizedek. And then he says, but I can't do it because you're just so, uh, you know, unmature. You're lacking maturity and all that. He doesn't start again. He actually does go ahead and do it anyway. It's like, it's like he says, you know, you just can't make it. But you know what? I'm not going back and starting over. And he just kind of grabs a hold of them and pulls them with him anyway. So he disciplines them and makes them come along. And he says, you're going to get there if God allows you to get there. Well, why wouldn't God allow them to get there? They'll get there. God will allow them to get there. But here's the deal. Are they suffering persecution? Are some of them going to die for their faith? Okay. But that's not a reason to quit maturing, is it? Okay. Keep reading. Verse, uh, where are we? Four. Another connecting word. Four. It is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the power of the age to come, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. Now, that's a long sentence, but I want to I talk about part of it first uh, before we do the whole sentence. The part that I want to talk about first is when he says, if they fall away. That actually probably would be better translated when, not if. He's actually writing to people that he believes either have done that or on the verge of it, right? You ought to be growing, and you're not. We've got to start over with you. So what he says here is, look, here's what's impossible. It's impossible for you who have, if you've tasted the heavenly gift, what would you call that? Yeah, I'd call that saved, wouldn't you? And they have these miraculous things too, right? They've got all these things, so they're in this place where all these things are. And now he says it's impossible when you go back over here where you were before to be made right with God again. And why? What did he say? Why did he say? Verse 6. They crucify again to themselves the Son of God. How can they crucify Him again? See, here's the deal. Again, I want to talk about... He's been talking about the, the real versus the shadow and all of that. If all of those sacrifices under the old law were a shadow, right? All the lambs. Let's use the Passover lamb. All of those Passover lambs that were, sh- that were slain. 
What did they mean? One day God's perfect lamb would be sacrificed, right? And if that lamb fulfills all of these lambs, right? This is the this is the shadow, this is the real, right? Okay, well if you leave this one here, what do those point to now? Nothing. There's not a fulfillment anymore. So what he's not he's not saying you put Jesus back on the cross. What he's saying is you lose your sacrifice. You, you sacrifice all these bulls, and what you're doing is you're pointing to a new crucifixion, but it's not going to happen. So it's impossible to renew these people again. Now, I want to step to the side and do a side note just a second, and I want to show you how uh, a little bit of how gymnastics have to happen for some people to believe what they believe. I, I have a lot of commentaries. I don't read very many of them very often. Occasionally I will just simply because I want to see what other people believe or maybe I'm having trouble with a passage and I want to see what somebody says about it. But I was reading through this section because I know the challenge here. And the commentary that I read particularly uh, in this particular passage said, before he even got into it, he said, listen, I want you to know that what Paul, well, he uses Paul too. He said what he's talking about is not falling away. Because the Bible teaches you can't fall from grace. That's where he started. And then when he got to this part that we just read, he said, see what he says to these people is, you have fallen away. Not from grace. But you don't have, you don't have the joy that you had before with God. How do you get there? Here's a question. He said, when, or you can even use the word if if you want to. When you fall away, it is impossible to renew you because you crucify again the Son of God. Does that sound somebody like somebody who's saved but just not happy about it? Or does that sound like somebody who's lost? Why did they crucify Jesus? Because they were lost. Right? Isn't that what Peter told them on the day of Pentecost when he stood up, stood up and said, God gave you all these prophecies, he sent his Son into this world, and you killed him. You gave him to sinful hands, and you killed him. And they said what? What shall we do? Right? And then he said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. They've got to get rid of their sins, right? So they could, not only could they fall away, these people did. So did they in the book of Galatians. You can absolutely be lost even after being saved. Because these people are enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift. Yeah, I, I should have highlighted that. Yeah. Yeah, and in fact, I used to know somebody who believed they could not be saved because of this passage. It's not, the emphasis is not on what God can forgive. The emphasis is on what I have left to take care of. I cannot go back to God unless I go through His Son, right? And if I go back to the old law to find my, my justification, I can't go through Him. So there's no way to be made right again. No sacrifice. Okay. Now, he's going to illustrate it, verses 7 and 8. For, again, you see how many times we had these connecting words? For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessings from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to be cursed whose end is to be burned. So we think about the land, right? Uh, when it rains, does it, does it like, I mean, I know it can do this in Florida, but Let's just think logically here. When it rains, does it rain on your yard and not your neighbor's? It can do that, I know. 
But most of the time it doesn't, right? If it rains on your yard, it usually rains on your neighbor's yard too. Uh, that's just the way rain works, right? Okay, but what if your neighbor has this in, incredible floor to him, and you know he's got a sprinkler system, and he's he's fertilizing it, and you've got like barnyard grass. Okay, his grass is benefiting from the rain. What's yours doing? It's just growing weeds, right? Okay, same blessing. What determined what happened was what was put in the soil. So one benefited and from the blessing. One did not. And the one that does not, well, you just tear it up and burn it, right? The field, you tear it up and burn it. And the point that he's making with this illustration is all of these people who have tasted of the heavenly gifts, these people who are Christians, have all received the blessing of God. Those people who stay there are going to keep getting it. Those people who leave and go back, they're just a bunch of thorns. In fact, didn't Jesus use that same example or parable when he's talking about the farmer that went out and he's sowing in the field and he just throws a seed out and some of it does fall on good ground, some of it falls on ground that sprouts up, but then what happens to it? Yeah, the cares of the world come up with thorns and thistles and all that and choke it away, don't they? It's exactly what he just said here. They started, they tasted the heavenly gift, all of a sudden here come the briars and thorns because they're worried about dying. That's what it is. They're worried about dying. They have all this persecution that's happening from Rome and from Judaism, and they're worried about dying. I don't want you to think this is trivial here. And so because of their fear of dying, they go backwards. Now, the reason I wanted to emphasize that is this. It is really easy for us to sit here in this nice, comfortable, air-conditioned facility in these nice, soft chairs in a country that allows me the freedom to not have to worry about whether or not anybody's going to be arresting me or putting me before a firing squad or whatever, and then look at these people and say, wow, they really they just gave it up. They just didn't get it. But if it was, if it was us, what are you afraid of? Didn't we read in our last class about those who are captive always by their fear of death and Christians don't have to be there? I know I've been emphasizing that a lot lately, because, but I, it's because I think that's the key to this book, staying in the things that are better. When you get to this place where you, look, I don't, I don't want somebody to make it illegal. And I don't want them to start shooting us or something like that. But here's what I know. If they do, we don't, we don't lose. If we go back, whether they kill us or not, we've lost. Yes. Absolutely. Did, they didn't believe he's the Messiah. You don't believe it. That's exactly right. Yeah. You just don't believe he's the sacrifice. And that's the result of their actions. They might not say it, but that's the result of their actions. Some of them probably, yeah. Some of them. Some of them probably were, yeah. All right, let's keep going. I've got about five more minutes. Uh, Verse 9. But, beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish or lazy, but imitate those those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So he just says, look... The reason I'm being so hard on you is because I think you can do better. You know, if you thought your kids just couldn't do any better, would you push them hard? If you thought they were doing the very best they could do, would you be okay with that? 
Yeah, when you push them hard is when you think, when they come home and say, well, I made a 42 on this test, but everybody did. It was the teacher's fault. And you say, yeah, I tried that when I was a kid too, right? But if they come home and they say, look, I studied as hard as I could. I made a 92. I wish I'd made a 100. That's the best I could do. And you helped them. You knew that they studied. Are you okay with that? Well, if it's 82, you okay with that? If they did the best they could do, they did the best they could do, right? So he's saying, look, I don't think you've done the best you can do. I think you can do better. I think you will do better. And that's why we're being so hard on you. That's why I'm saying the things that I'm saying the way that I'm saying them is because I don't want you to stay here and become lazy and not reap the benefits of what God has for you. 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying... Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Now stop there. Because I didn't talk about this when he was talking about them, but I drew it. I want to draw it together now. He's talked about patience twice there. Is there a magic pill you can take and all of a sudden become a faithful Christian? A mature Christian? Is there a magic pill you can take that all of a sudden would, if you're them, protect you from all the persecution around you? You're going to have to endure it, right? little bit at a time. You're going to have to grow a little bit at a time. And the reason you keep doing it is because God fulfills his promises. So now he draws back to Abraham and he said, when God told Abraham to leave his home in the land of Ur, he didn't have any kids, did he? God told him, leave this and I'll show you a land that your descendants will inherit and I will give you a son. It took a long time. In fact, it took so long that he and his wife finally just said, look, maybe God needs our help. And they came up with their own plan, right? And that didn't work. That made everything worse, didn't it? When they, got, when, they, when they got what they needed, when they got what God promised them, it was when they were patiently enduring what he needed them to go through. So, keep reading. And so after he had patiently endured, he attained the promise. 16. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things... In which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hope of the hope that is set before us. So God says here two things. One of them is he made a promise. And the other thing is he secured it with the evidence, which is the oath. So here's what he said. God can't lie. And it's not like he could appeal to a higher power, right? Because he is the higher power. And so the reason you are patient and endure and grow is because God can't lie. And he promised that if you endure, that he will provide for you. You'll get there. Now finish it off. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So he's bookended it here with this priesthood. Here's why. Listen, we sing the song, don't we, about our anchor of the soul? Right? We talk. Do you hear what he's saying? What he's saying is, I have to patiently endure to grow, to endure, to deal with all these things around me. To become what God wants me to be takes effort and strength and discipline. But I keep going because I got an anchor on the other side. And what's that anchor? My high priest. The one that went before the throne of God and now makes it possible for me to go before the throne of God. That's my anchor. As long as I'm, okay, if you got an anchor on your boat, it's going to stay where it is, isn't it? What if you cut the anchor line? You drift away. 
So he's telling them, you have drifted away. You've got to get hold of this anchor line and stay where you're supposed to be. Okay, we're out of time. Let's close with a prayer. Father, we're so thankful for the opportunity to be here tonight to study your word. And we're so thankful that we can even use this avenue of prayer because of your son, our high priest. We pray, Father, that we will recognize the blessing that that is and, and, and use it in such a way that you can be glorified and the world can be brought to you. Forgive us where we fail you. In Christ's name, amen.